Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. Canadians can't complain about the many, many books that have been published on Canada's experience in the First World War. They have been of remarkable quality, and I only wish our broadcasters and filmmakers would wake up and rise to the task of telling these stories to the broadest audience possible. Maybe they'll find inspiration in a book by Ted Glenn on a particular type of Canadian soldier, the cyclist. Ted Glenn is professor and program coordinator of the public administration program at Humber College, just west of Toronto. Full disclosure, I've known Ted for almost 20 years now, and I'm delighted to have him in the studio with me to talk about his new book, Riding into Battle, Canadian Cyclists in the Great War, published by Dundurn Press. Ted, welcome to the mic. Thanks, Pat. Pleasure to be here. Ted, you were a public servant in the Ontario government before you started teaching public administration. You're a recognized expert on government communication, so I have to say I was a bit surprised when you told me about this project. What prompted you to pursue it? I think there's a couple of things. There's a kind of a historic component and a personal component. Historic component, I was working on a, another project uh, that was uh, set in Toronto in the immediate uh, post-Great War era. And, you know, if you can imagine that time, it, it took it took better part of a year to get all those troops home. And Toronto was war mad. Every day there was uh, troops arriving uh, off, the, uh, off the boats from Halifax and Montreal. And the major disembarkation point was Camp Exhibition. And so every day in the newspapers, uh, camp exhibition. You mean ex- exhibition grounds? Exhibition grounds. Yeah. Oh, okay. And, and we'll 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 find. There's more to that story there. Um, but you know, so the place was mad with war. Uh, stories. There was uh, lectures. There was books. There was art, and it was just it was crazy. So I came across this reference though in the course of of, of this project to the cyclist coming home. And I was like, the what? <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of how it started for me is that it's, I, I didn't know that there were cyclists in the war. Um, and are it, you a cyclist? I'm a cyclist. So, so this is the personal link to it is that once I dug in a bit and started uh, to find out that in fact, 1,138 cyclists were enlisted uh, to fight for Canada, almost all of them did their training at Camp Exhibition. And one of the things they did, they did this uh, famous Battle of the Humber. They would ride up and down the, the Humber River Valley, up around the, uh, the old mill. And, and that's the route I take to work every day on my bike. So this was their training? That's part of their, uh, their basic training here in okay. Toronto. What was their role? Once these guys are shipped over with their bicycles, what was their role in terms of, of waging the war? Well, it may seem odd to us now in the 21st century, but uh, at the time, uh, bikes were a major technological uh, innovation. And they had been since the Boer War. And they, they functioned um, much like uh, what's called light cavalry. So they were lightly armored troops that would f- um, do reconnaissance. They would do uh, skirmishing. They would do... They carried a gun. They carried uh, uh, not only a gun. Some of them actually had Hotchkiss uh, portable machine guns mounted on their handlebars. <laughs> <laughs> if you can picture that. <laughs> but yeah, they, they, were, they were light cavalry. And at the time, the technological innovation was that when, when a light cavalry went out... Uh, um, one guy had to stay behind and hold four horses. Uh, so they had like a quarter of the troop would be holding the horses. With the bikes... You just drop the bike. Right. And uh, they, did, they wouldn't and scatter. And you don't have to feed the bike. You have to feed the bike. They're not being hit <laughs> by shrapnel. Uh, so it was, it was a major technical, technological innovation. And these guys, these guys traveled together like a, like a peloton or...? 
Uh, well, it depends. Uh, if they were, um, sometimes they'd be riding single file. Sometimes they dump the bikes and they'd, uh, you know, have to grab some rowboats and go up the canal or whatever. But uh, most of the, most of the time, they were in small groups. You know, you think about it. This has got to be the only war where the bicycle played an important role. I mean, as you say, the Boer War, but mechanized the, the improvements in the in the mechanisms of the bicycle were, were substantial. And the, after the First World War, uh, it's important to remember that uh, the Tour de France, for example, uh, was started in 1903 because the technique that the, the the bicycle had been perfected to the point where you can allow guys to ride their heads off quite literally for a month in July. So the bicycle disappears after the First World War. You don't hear about the bicyclists in the Second World War. <laughs> you don't, but they were there. Were they there? And, okay. in, and in fact, one of the some of the most famous pictures in the Second World War were the paratroopers with their folding bikes. Oh, really? And there were 70,000 <laughs> of them purchased for the U.S. Army alone. And so you got these guys with their parachutes and their fold-up bikes. You know, these days they're I've all never like, seen it. Yeah, yeah and, and they, learning they drop in and they'd unfold and ride. I just don't remember seeing that on Saving Private Ryan. I'm sorry. Uh, that, that's great. I mean, so, I mean, it's, it's an important point because the First World War really turned on mechanization with the invention of the tank. Of course, the plane plays a role. Uh, the improvements in in in, uh, in barrage, uh, the, what they call the creeping barrage, which was basically uh, attacking the opponent uh, on a multiple, on a, a multiple series of layers deeper into the, uh, into the, the back line. So, but let's get back to the soldiers. So, I mean, they're fighting they're shooting, but what are their roles otherwise? Why give them a bicycle, not give everybody a bicycle? Well, I think what happened in the best illustration is during the Hundred Days campaign. At the okay, end of the war. let's, let's most talk the, about it. Most of the war, the cyclists are stuck in the trenches like everybody else. That's right. They're not on their bikes. Uh, they're carrying stretchers. There's some diary uh, entries of the boys at uh, at Vimy where they basically say that we ended up putting the, the ridge into sandbags. So for most of the time, this is what they're doing. Hundred Days uh, Camden comes along the the great Allied uh, offensive. This is in August of 1918. It starts in August 8th at the Battle of Amiens, and the cyclists are put together with a, with a group of motorized machine gun trench lorries with uh, these these Newton trenches uh, attached to them, motorcycles, cavalry, and it is it is a um, kind of a predecessor of what happens in the Second World War with the motorized uh, combined warfare strategy. And so these guys are all partnered together to basically, um, once they, once the artillery has the Germans out of the trenches, keep them, keep them moving, keep them going and to and, keep in touch. With and this them. is the hundred, this is the hundred day war when they're, the they're quite literally march forward onto Mons in, in Belgium. Amiens is in France. Mons is in Belgium. We're going back to the point of the first point of battle. Correct. In 1914 in Mons. And then it goes beyond that. The, the Canadians move into German territory. Yeah, the uh, the first and second divisions uh, at the uh, at the armistice actually are asked by the British to to go on as the force in Germany for uh, until February, mm -hmm. and so they're they're actually the occupying force. They're along the the, the Rhine at uh, Cologne. So these guys on bicycles are they involved in reconnaissance? Are they in well? So so Amiens is a really good uh, illustration of what they did. So um, the Canadian offensive tactics at this point, like you say, it starts with a, a massive barrage to kind of get the the Germans out of the trenches, and then the creeping barrage happens, and the infantry follow the tanks into uh, the German territory. Ahead of those guys, though, are the cyclists. They're doing uh, reconnaissance. They're doing skirmishing. They're they're reporting back on their bikes. Um, with intelligence about where the last of the German uh, elements are, whether it's a, um, a machine gun hut or they're in a wood somewhere. But yeah, these guys are, these guys in some cases, uh, like the pursuit from the Sansei from October 17th to 23rd, they're days out ahead of the main army. 
tell me about these guys. Are they Toronto guys? How many are there? <laughs> 1,138 of them. 261 are died or wounded. 261 died or wounded. One of the highest uh, mortality rates in any of the units. Who are these guys? They're, they're across Canada. What's interesting is, is they've got these great um, photographs of the battalion. And if you look close up, you get a real cross-section that you don't expect. You, got, you can see that they're from the Caribbean. They're from all over the place. The Caribbean? Yeah. Signing up here in Toronto? Uh, they, uh, a lot of immigrants mm. uh, would be signing up. Okay. Uh, but mostly, um, they, they enlist across the country. They come to Toronto for basic training. And over the course from uh, 19, uh, late 1914 to 1916, they're training out of uh, uh, camp exhibition at the Medieval uh, Times building. <laughs> Which at that point was known as the government, the government building. Really? Yeah. And most of them are young. Most of them are in their like early 20s. A lot of them have a university education because they're in communications. They have to know how to read maps. They have to know how to do signaling. Um, but there's, you know, it's it's also quite a quite a group. There's a, a Tom Kennedy, the uh, future premier of Ontario, is the uh, a major with the uh, the second company. And at that point, he he owns a farm, his family farm out at uh, out in Cooksville. And uh, so he's asked to put together this uh, uh, second company. He's in the militia. Uh, he and George Dennison IV uh, put together the, the company. And they, they do a lot, a lot of rides out to the farm and hmm. to do 14 and a half miles. On a heavy bike. On a heavy bike. Thomas, tell, tell us about the bike. Oh, the bikes are fun. Um, they, they are heavy. What, what they end up riding in the war is a 24-inch frame uh, Birmingham Small Arms Company, a BSA. And these things are um, caliper brakes, uh, coaster hubs with clips for mounting a machine gun on the on the uh, handlebars. on the handlebars, and then they've also got clips for the for putting the the rifle uh, along the side for the for the long marches. Um, that's what they were using in the war mostly. For training, though, they used CCMs and planets. And actually, the planets made in Toronto. The planets were made down in Queen East. Uh, just uh, the, the planets you called. The Planet Bike. The Planet Bike. The Planet Bike, and these were these were the company was eventually bought out by by CCM. Okay, but uh, they were a little lighter, and uh, they actually didn't function as well on the battlefield. But uh, that's what they used around uh, around Toronto to train on. Now, did people sign up for this bicycle unit, or were they assigned to it? Mostly, they uh, mostly they signed up at Valcarcier. They uh, there was a, a general call for volunteers, and so they got 196 volunteers to ride bikes. They actually didn't get to train on the bikes there. They didn't actually do much training when they got to uh, uh, Salisbury, but they um, they it was a general call there. But the next four companies were specifically uh, enlisted. They were they were they were specifically uh, targeted for uh, to, to ride bikes. And um, there's some great posters, uh, recruitment posters for for cyclists. Bad teeth, no bar. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I know, and it was quite a, it was it was a popular thing because they they thought I mean the the the, the trench warfare wasn't going to last long, and they could get out on their bikes and ride hard after the. Germans. And much of your book is dedicated, and you brought it up already, the 100-day campaign, when finally the troops are on the move after three and a half years of uh, stuck in the mud. Is there anything that particularly, and, and the Canadians, I mean, historians now consider the 100-day war, the 100-day campaign to be really the most singular accomplishment of the Canadian military. Experts will tell you it's not Vimy so much as the 100-day campaign that really demonstrated the prowess of the Canadian troops and the prowess of the Canadian uh, war effort in terms of logistics, in terms of mechanization, in terms of firepower, uh, and, and in terms of sure vindictiveness. I mean, this is really when the Canadian crack troops 
shock troops uh, came into their own. Tell us about the, the cyclist on the 100-day war. I mean, the hundred, I keep calling it the 100-day war, the 100-day campaign. Are there any particular exploits? Well, there's a couple. I mean, when, when you talk about, uh, you know, Canadians coming into their own, the cyclists really came into our own during this period. Um, and, and I think one of the, one of the stories uh, from that period that really shows it is, is the lead-up to Amiens. Actually, before the battle. Right. Uh, so by that point in the war, as, as you say, um, the Canadians, the Australians as well, have become renowned on the Allied side as, as elite shock troops. Like those are the guys that are going to lead the major charges. Uh, and, but they're also similarly uh, famous on the German side for the opposite reason. They're, you know, they're, if, if they see the Canadians organizing for an offensive, they know it's going to be a major one. Canadians have a bad reputation at that point. That point. I mean, we are using gas. Absolutely. And uh, we... Do not, we don't tend to take a lot of prisoners. Uh, no, <laughs> they were pretty bloody by this point, but they were also incredibly drilled and yes. incredibly efficient. So to keep everything under wraps, to mm -hmm. keep the Germans from knowing what's going to happen, they actually ended up moving the Canadian army from Arras to Amiens, which is about 35, 38 miles. And to keep it all under wraps, they moved them at night over the course of uh, seven nights. And if you, so if you can imagine, uh, First World War, these tiny, narrow little roads. Yes. You've been there. You, you, country. You know what that's like? It's country roads. And so you, ma you imagine an army, uh, 150,000 odd uh, men with horses and tanks and everything else moving through the countryside at night, no lights. And these quietly, quietly, and, and these cyclists trying to, you know, dodge and weave and <laughs> keep them in place. There's, there's one of the nights they actually do a 57 kilometer ride. They leave about 10 o'clock. They get in about six in the morning wow. and, uh, they're, they're wiped. They're exhausted because it's, uh, you know, they've got these heavy bikes. They've got full kit on and full kit for the cyclists in the great war is about 90 pounds. Not including souvenirs and other crap they picked up. This is not a featherweight specialized uh, bicycle. It's no, a war it, machine. This is not the Tour de France. This is not the Tour de France. You dedicate your book to a man called Dick Ellis. Who is this man? <laughs> he is quite a character, as a lot of the guys were. So he was born in England in 1895. He uh, moves with his family to Toronto uh, in the late aughts and meets the love of his life at the Balmy Beach Club just before he goes off to war. And he's, uh, he's with the, um, the fifth company, fifth division company, ill-fated. He gets transferred later on to battalion, but ends up spending most of the time uh, with the cyclist. War finishes, they come back, he gets married to his childhood sweetheart. And by 1934, the cyclists hadn't seen each other much. And so he decides he's going to start up a battalion association, as a lot of, as a lot of the, the different regiments did. Uh, so he starts this group up, and uh, it actually goes for 50 years. These guys meet for 50 years. They would get together. In Toronto? Uh, across the country, mostly okay. in Toronto. Okay. Uh, they have a big banquet. Every uh, year? Every year. And sometimes more. And, he had, and then he also started up this great uh, informal kind of ad hoc newsletter. Go out two, three times a year. That's why I got a ton of the stuff, uh, the diary entries for the book. But in 1937, at a big dinner in Toronto, uh, he buys this bottle of Paul Roger uh, champagne. And he says, uh, all right, last two guys in the battalion alive. You get to drink this. <laughs> Incredibly, in 1993, him and another cyclist named Billy Richardson are the last two alive. In 1993? 1993. Uh, so they get together. They drink the champagne. <laughs> What's well, a wonderful story. There's a, there, and there's a, there's a great picture of them in the star, uh, of, of these two guys with these great saucers. And, and then two years later, um, Billy Richardson dies shortly after that. And uh, two years later, uh, Dick Ellis dies at the grand old age of 100. Wow. 
but he's he was you know he he came back he had a quite a successful life at uh, uh, professional life at, at Manulife, uh, and then he retired in the early '60s and uh, took on the task of reorganizing the commissioners. And so for 20 years, uh, ran that organization after he'd retired. So he's really sort of the house historian, the battalion historian, the guy who collected. I mean, I want to ask you this because, I mean, at the Champlain Society, we're all about documentation. Right. So what, 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 what documents were available to you uh, to write this book? Well, so... I describe it as kind of like layers of a painting. So I've got a, uh, you've got uh, some basic primary material that kind of give you the foundation. Nicholson is the, is the, is the starting point, the official historian for, for the Great War. And what's surprising from a, from a, I guess, a historian's perspective is that, you know, cyclists are mentioned in, in any major or minor account of the war. Nobody's kind of pulled it together into a, a coherent narrative. So you've got Nicholson, you've got Grants, you've got all of these other references there to kind of lay it out. Uh, you've also got some really good uh, detailed war diaries. So w- one of the cool things about the Great War is that the uh, the chief archivist of Canada, following British practice, required all of the units to keep diaries. And they're now all available online. Uh, LEC has finished the project this summer of putting all of the war records up. So you've got this really rich kind of detailed account of all of the major uh, units in, in, in the war, moving through the war. You've also got uh, Brutonel, who was the uh, uh, Brigadier General, uh, Raymond Brutonel, who was the head of the Canadian Independent Force, with which the, the cyclists fought in the 100 days. Uh, he's got detailed, uh, him and his crew have got detailed uh, diaries and, and accounts back to uh, Curry on, on all of their activities. So it's like hill by hill, railway by railway. So you've got that as a foundation, and then you've got this real rich um, diary that uh, Ellis put together uh, over the years, and you've got uh, this, this thing called the Cyclone, and he's, he's also done uh, four or five different attempts to pull it all together, and so there's, there's a lot of good kind of rich personal components to it. It adds texture to the story, it's a lot of texture it? to it. Now, you're telling me that there's a social media aspect to all this now. Everywhere you go. <laughs> But for Canadian cyclists of the First World War, tell me more about that. Well, the fella in Ottawa has actually pulled together a Facebook group, the Cyclist Descendants, and there's about 100 of them on there. And uh, most of them have family, grandfathers or great uncles who, who fought as, as a cyclist. And so there's a, um, a rich collection of private photographs and uh, diary entries and stuff uh, about them there. And it's, uh, uh, I met one of them at, uh, actually at the book launch. One of the cyclists, and he's got this great collection of diary entries and pictures and stuff. It's a new community. It's, it's, it's nice a, to hear that the, these these guys a hundred years ago have people today who are still remembering their uh, their efforts vividly. Well, and and I've been I've been fortunate enough. Uh, I partnered with the uh, Canadian Center for the Great War, and uh, they've got a, an exhibit up on the cyclists. Um, oh, that's great! I was able to pull a bunch of. Really great uh, photographs from City of Toronto archives, um, the National Archives, uh, Mississauga, um, uh, St. Albert, Alberta. There's, so I've, I've got a bunch of really interesting stuff that they've been gracious enough to pull together and exhibit. Well, it's a great story. Thank you, Ted, for this very original book on Canada's war experience. I have uh, a feeling that there's a lot more to talk about this, but we'll have to cut it off here and invite our listeners to uh, to read your book. So thank you very much for coming. My pleasure. 
I was speaking with Ted Glenn, the author of Riding into Battle, Canadian Cyclists in the Great War, published by Dundurn Press. He teaches in the Public Administration Program at Humber College. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca, where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blog, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's history. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University. It was recorded on October 1st, 2018, and was produced by Naomi Katz and Richard Anstey and Hugh Backhurst. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.